Good morning, Cross Point. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and for worshiping together as we continue following Jesus together as we work our way through the Gospel of Mark. And so if you will, turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 35 as we continue studying through God's Word. But, but here's the thing, whenever we talk about studying the Bible together, it's more than just information. It's more than just the knowledge of God, though it is that. Our hope is always that knowledge will become wisdom. And the way that that happens is when information is applied to the challenges in everyday life, and we put what we know into practice, knowledge becomes wisdom. It's that knowledge that is applied. And oftentimes, the way that this happens is through the test of circumstances, through the challenges that we face. And then we have to say, do I really believe this? Am I really going to apply this? And this is exactly what is going to happen with the disciples. This is where they've been. They've seen Jesus. They've seen his power and authority over the the spiritual world, over the the physical world. They've heard him teach about the kingdom of God. They've been able to be pulled to the side and ask questions about what Jesus was saying. But then in a moment where we pick up today in 435, it's as if there's a pop quiz. That's going to be put to the test. Circumstances are going to challenge what they've heard, what they think they know, then to see how they respond. And so before we dive in, let's pray. Humble our hearts before God and then dive in together. I thank you time this morning. I thank you that we can gather together. We can open your word. And Lord, I pray that you would humble our hearts before you to not only hear what you have to say, but to understand how it applies to our life, that that knowledge for us as well would become wisdom in how we live. And Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when we pick up in 435, you'll see that very first phrase, on that day, evening had come. This is that pop quiz. There's no time to study. There's no time to prepare. There's no time to pack. It's saying that on that day when evening had come, Jesus had just preached all these parables of the kingdom. It had been a long day. And he said to them, let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. No changing, no packing, no preparation. This is the pop. Let's go then to the other side. And several boats then launch with Jesus to go across. And in Jesus' humanity, being fully God and fully man, it says that Jesus was exhausted. He falls asleep in the stern of the boat. But it says... As he fell asleep, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, before the disciples awoke him. Now, here's the thing I think is helpful for us to understand is, is the Sea of Galilee lays 686 feet below sea level. And so what happens then 
is because it's at the bottom of a rift between the Arabian Sea, uh, sorry, the, the Arabian Desert and the Mediterranean Sea, hemmed in with this rift on mountains that are snow-capped at times. That contrast between the hot and cold would, would create this wind tunnel that would funnel right into the Sea of Galilee, which means that even today, in modern day, with powered boats, the, the captains of those vessels have to be very careful and watch the weather to make sure that, hey, is this going to be safe to go out? And so this instantaneous storm isn't just something crazy and out of the blue. It would have been normal. It would have been something that was known and understood and yet was violent. The disciples would have known this. They, the majority of them were fishermen, right? They had been on boats out to sea. This wouldn't have been this strange new experience for them. And I think that's important for us to really understand what's going on. And, and if we could place ourselves on the boat for a moment, right? Like all of a sudden you've seen Jesus teach all of these things about the kingdom of God. And then you're, you're in this boat and, the, and then the storm begins to rage. The seas are lifting you up and then crashing down waves pouring into the boat. You, you feel and hear the tension in the ropes and in the sails pulling with all their might, wondering if they will, will tear and break. Waves are crashing over the side of the boats. You grab a bucket and you're hauling water out as fast as you can, soaked in the rain and the wind. But it doesn't matter, regardless of how fast you get the water out, it feels like more is coming in than you're able to get out. And fear begins to well in your heart. But then it begins to mingle together with, with anger, with doubt, with frustration. The, the storm inside almost becomes more powerful than the storm that's outside. Because the fear goes much, much deeper than the storm itself. Their bodies were soaked from the storm. But their hearts their hearts began to sink into despair. And we see this by the nature of the question that they come to Jesus with. This is what's so important for us to see, to really understand this passage. Teacher, teacher, do you not care? Do you not care that we're perishing? Listen to the words. Listen to, to, to what their fear is. Do you hear it? In the midst of the storm, in the midst of all the ways, they go to Jesus and they're like, don't you care? This is what's at the heart of what their longing is. This is what is at the heart of their fear. What's beneath the fear is that God, that Jesus had abandoned them, that he didn't love them, that he didn't care for them. It's words of brokenness. It's words of anger, of fear, of doubt, of accusation against Jesus. Don't you care? See, and it can be easy at times for us to kind of sit back to the disciples, see the times when they mess up and think, we wouldn't have done that. I mean, look at all these things. Look who Jesus is. We would have been better disciples than the disciples. But what happens if we place ourselves in that metaphorical boat? of our life. 
right? The circumstances rise. It may not be wind. It may not be the waves. But have you ever said it feels like one thing after the other, after the other, and I'm striving and striving to keep my head above water, but it doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter how much I pray. It doesn't matter how hard I work. In the end, I feel like I'm sinking deeper and deeper. And we look to God and we say the very same thing. Don't you care? Look at what I'm going through. Don't you care? This is where the disciples were. Don't you care about me? Don't you care about the circumstances that I'm going through? And this is then where Jesus, in verse 39, he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the sea and said, Peace! Be still. Here's the thing I love about studying the different words. This word rebuke is the same thing a parent would use for a toddler who's throwing a temper tantrum. Okay, so imagine bedtime, right? You've gone through the whole ritual and then you've repeated it numerous times and finally you're like, enough, go to sleep. No more water, no more getting out of bed, no more questions, sleep. This is essentially what Jesus is doing here. He wakes up and he rebukes the wind and the wave. And he's like, peace, be still. But unlike that toddler, the wind and the waves instantly obey. Right? They instantly, if we can just imagine the scene for a moment. Right, Those sails that were being taught with the wind have now gone slack. The, the, the wind that was blowing against your drenched face is still. The, the waves and the water inside the boat are no longer slopping about. It's still. The, the cries of the people on the boats are hushed. And the waves that once raged over the edge of the boat are now like this glass table beneath the boat. Absolutely, perfectly still. Both the wind and the waves. Instantly. But then Jesus' tone changes. I, I wonder how long that silence lasted. Right? The, the, the panic, the, the emotion, the movement. Jesus, don't you care? We're perishing. The peace. Be still. The silence. And then the question. Why are you afraid? It's not in the same tone that Jesus rebuked the wind and the wave. But it's no less piercing. It's no less convicting and penetrating. Why are you afraid? See, Jesus' plea does not indicate that they were just, sorry, the disciples' plea to Jesus does not indicate that they were just afraid of dying. That, oh no, there's this storm and we're going to die and they're going to Jesus for help. Is that fear or is that faith? When we go to God in help, 
trusting that he is the one to help us. That's faith, not fear. But Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? See, they weren't afraid of just perishing. They were afraid that Jesus didn't care. They were afraid that, that he didn't love them, that he didn't care for them, and that the storm and the circumstances of the storm was somehow an accusation against them, either intentionally or God just didn't care and they were going through it on their own. But it's as if Jesus is asking in that question, why are you afraid? He's saying, why, why do you doubt my love? Why do you doubt my care for you? When circumstances are hard, didn't I say, didn't I say where we were going? Didn't I say that I would always be with you? Doubting Jesus's care in the midst of the storm is the lack of faith, not them going to Jesus for help. The disciples were afraid that Jesus didn't care for them personally, that he didn't care for their circumstances. Raymond Edmond says this, never doubt in the dark what God told you in the light. See, this is where knowledge becomes wisdom. When we believe what God has told us in the light and we apply it during those seasons when we're going in the dark, when it's hard, faith is trusting that God who said he would always be present, where he would always be near, where he would be our everlasting hope and salvation and redeemer, that that is true regardless of the circumstances we're going through. Where is your faith? Jesus asked. Where are you placing it? In your circumstances or in me? Rather than going to Jesus in faith, they came to him in a fearful accusation that he did not care or love them. And here's the thing, after Jesus calms the storm, after he asked this question, here's the amazing thing that happens. Because the disciples were afraid, right? They were afraid in the midst of the storm, this uncontrollable power that they were familiar with, but they could not control. They were filled with fear and they went to Jesus in, in accusation that he didn't care in the midst of that. And after Jesus calms the storm, they're filled with an even greater fear. They're filled with terror. They were afraid before. They're really afraid now. This is fascinating in my mind. Like, why is this? Because though the storm is uncontrollable, with immense power that they thought that they were sinking. Jesus, with a word, with a word, calmed the storm. He didn't call on the name of somebody else. He didn't say, in the name of Zeus or in the name of, of Yahweh, peace. He simply stood and in the authority and power of his own word, told the waves to calm down and the wind to stop. And they obeyed. Who is this? This was their question. Who is this? Because they don't yet see that Jesus is infinitely greater than what they feel is the most chaotic thing that they had no control over. And yet Jesus in his power controlled it. That Jesus is infinitely more powerful. And yet 
completely uncontrollable. Like an untamed lion standing beside them outside his cage. And they're filled with great fear. A fear greater than what the storm produced. But the difference, the difference between the storm and the Savior is that the storm doesn't love them. But the Savior does. And He is more powerful. Who is this? Is the question that lingers throughout the Gospel of Mark that will be asked and answered. We know because of Mark chapter 1, verse 1, who Jesus is. The disciples are still figuring that out. But here is a clue. Because only God has the power over wind and waves. Think of the similarity to this passage in Psalm 107 that I'm about to read. In verses 23 through 31. Some went down to the seas in ships, doing business on the great waters. God lifted the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven and they went down to the depths. You can just see the motion of the crashing waves here. And their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. They cried to the Lord in their trouble. And He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love. Don't you care? Don't you care that we're perishing? Yes. Let us be reminded of his steadfast love love. See, some of the storms that we face are outside. They're the circumstances. We can see the waves. We can feel the wind blowing against us. But other times, the storms lay beneath the surface. They're not as easily seen. They're in our hearts. They're within our souls, the turmoil, the turbulence, the storm that we face inside. And what we're going to see as this passage continues into chapter 5 is that Jesus not only has the power and authority for the external circumstances in our life, but he has the power and authority for those inward turbulence, for the inward pain, for the inward storms. And this is where it continues, that it says in in verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the, the Gerasenes, that this, this was part of what's known as Decapolis. It was 10 cities that made up this single region. It was settled at the time of Alexander the Great. It was a mixture of both Jews and Gentiles, seen as unclean by Israel proper. It was a mixture of peoples. And immediately, it says... When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackle into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. 
is the immediate thing. Like for him to come running out of the tomb, completely exposed, unclothed. Tombs were seen as unclean by the Jews and haunted by the Gentiles. And he's been living in the tombs, in the cemetery, comes running to Jesus. But there's this interesting description that we see that should cause us to ask, is this man free or is he in bondage? Because think of what it says. Chains can't hold him, right? They, They try to bind him. They try to put shackles and chains on him, but he can break them to pieces. They fall apart. No one is strong enough to subdue him. He cannot be held down. You can't stop him. You can't even hope to contain him. So is the man free or is he in bondage? This is where we see outwardly, we would say, there's nothing holding him back. There's nothing holding him down. But he is bondage internally. And we see that as it continues. Because it talks about how night and day he would cry out. Gut-wrenching cries escaped his mouth morning and night. The pain was so great in his body that he would take shards of rocks to cut his flesh in hopes that the pain on the outside would release the pain that was within. But nothing seemed to work. The bondage just felt stronger and it's stronger. Nothing could free him. And at last, we realize the man is not free at all. Though chains couldn't hold him, his heart is bound. He's held captive. Not with visible chains, but with invisible chains. A living death, a terror within that robbed him of all hope, of all life. To the point where where the man throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And here's what we realize. Evil has a name. See, evil is not just this concept. It's not just a force. It's not just a notion as to the lack of good. Evil has a name. It has a beginning and it has an end. Charles Swindoll says this, all evil can be traced to agent, Satan. War, sickness, disease, catastrophes, violence, lust, addictions, pestilence, waste, relational conflicts, selfishness, all sin, and all that is wrong in the world is a particular expression of evil, the unending rebellion of Satan against God. The world continues to bear the scars of his mutiny. This is the reality of what evil is it is real it has a name it has an origin and it has a destined end a final judgment a conclusion to its destructive path satan and the evil that he produces will be thrown into the bottomless pit for a moment evil is allowed to exist Because as evil exists, before its destined end, God is continuing to save people, to draw them to himself. So it's like, why doesn't God just put an end to evil now? It's because in his mercy, he is continuing to save because the end will come. 
when evil and Satan and everything will be thrown into the bottomless pit and judged forever. But on that day, the end will come and all mankind will stand in judgment before God. And so in his mercy, he waits. And this is the question. This is the, the context of the question then that, that the, the evil spirits in, in this demon-possessed man ask. Because Jesus even says, what's your name? And he's like, it's legion, for we are many. Legion was, was a category of numbers from the Roman military that could number up to 6,000. We have no idea how many evil spirits were in this man. But we do know that the evil had a reign in this particular area because they're like, hey, don't send us out from this area. Is this the end? Are you going to send us into the abyss? Are you going to send us into the bottomless pit as it talks about in Revelation? Is this the end? Has the end finally come? No more redemption. No more time. This is it. And so Jesus agrees and cast the demons out into a herd of pigs that stand off into the distance. 2,000 pigs stood along a plateau, raised 1,720 feet above sea level. It's known where this event happened. And so I want you to imagine with me for a moment, after what we've just been through the night before, now... We're here, we see this evil, possessed man come running, throwing himself at Jesus' feet, seeing this whole conversation happen, realizing that you are standing before thousands of evil spirits. Jesus, in a word, cast them out. All happening in the unseen. Until the shrieks and squeals of the pigs. And it's like, because they are instantly possessed, running off the plateau down into the sea. And one by one, you hear the shrieks and the squeals. You watch them fall 1,700 feet to their death. And I kind of imagine, it's like one of these gruesome scenes that you can't stop watching. Like you can't take your eyes away from, like what just happened? And then again, it's the silence. And, and, and you look back. And, and then when you look back, you realize Jesus has clothed the man. His shame is covered, and the man is in his right mind. He's comforting and caring for the man who now sits with Jesus. The herdsmen, they run into town, and they're like, all the pigs just ran off the cliff. Right? People come out to investigate what happened. They see Jesus. They see the man who, who had been demon-possessed, who they knew could not be bound. That was the most powerful thing that they could ever conceive. And now there is one standing before him, untamed, uncontrollable, more powerful than that. And in great fear, they ask him to leave like leave don't understand don't it's too great no and so jesus agrees and he gets in the boat and he leaves 
as he's leaving, the man who had been demon-possessed comes to Jesus, and he's like, hey, can I go? Hey, can I go with you? I want to follow you, to be a disciple, but Jesus does not permit him. But rather, he says to him, go home in verse 19 to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Go and tell them what happened. Tell them your story. Tell them the mercy that you received. Because they're not going to listen to Jesus. They've asked him to leave. And so Jesus says, go, go and tell them. And here's the amazing thing. At one point, it could have just ended at verse 19. But we get verse 20, right? Like, look at what we hear. And he went away. This man obeyed and he proclaimed in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was marveled. Right? They marveled. The townspeople who would not listen to Jesus listened to this man who had a legion of demons in him. And within 200 years, history shows us that there were 20 churches within these 10 cities. One of the pastors were part from this region right here was part of the earliest Christian councils throughout church history from this region. He obeyed and he went. And so what does this mean for us this morning? Like, what do we take from this? I think the the first question I want us to take from that storm at night on the boat ride across the Sea of Galilee is this. Seeing God's love and care for you in the midst of life's storms. The disciples were afraid, not just of dying, not just of they were afraid that Jesus didn't care. I think this is the question for us this morning. Are you afraid that because of the challenges you're facing that God doesn't love you? That he doesn't care? Let us apply what we know of God to the fears in our hearts. God knew the circumstances they were in. He allowed it. Not out of maliciousness, not out of not caring, not out of not loving you. He promised to be present with you, your ever-present help, to never leave, never forsake for those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus. Do not doubt in the dark what God has spoken in the light. And I think, what does it look like for us to not doubt? Going to God in our help Like going to God for help in our time of need is an act of faith. When we go to God with accusations that he doesn't care or love us is a lack of faith. But we can come before God with a boldness and a confidence. And then I think we need to ask ourselves this question. Am I a slave to sin? Or am I free in Jesus? Like this is at the heart of what we need to understand from this demon-possessed man. Right? Because we can say, I can live however I want. But are we? 
Left to ourselves, we are not free. We are born hopelessly enslaved to sin. From the moment of birth, we are enslaved to sin. Invisible chains and shackles that bind us, though it may not be evident externally, it is the reality of who we are, is what Scripture says. From the womb, we are bound by sin, held captive to a nature that is selfish and rebellious to God. In this sinful nature, it distorts our minds, it distorts our affections, it distorts our decisions, calling us, causing us to live in ways that lack the dignity and purpose that we were called and intended to have to display the glory of God. We are born helplessly enslaved to sin, but we say, oh, we're free. I have a free will, right? But in reality, all that freedom is, is to say, if God is here, our backs are to him by our nature, and I'm free. I'm free to disobey in all these creative ways. But I need God to cause my heart to be able to turn. I have no freedom to do that on my own. Jesus frees the captives through his life death and resurrection. This is what Christ did when when he cast those demons out. The power of Christ and why he came is to free us from the bondage of sin. This is why Jesus' word is powerful. He has authority and power over all the world because he created it. Jesus' life is one of perfection, living the life that we could not His death paid a payment of debt that our sins has before a holy God. When we deserve wrath, Jesus paid for that through his perfect life, taking the punishment that our sins deserved upon himself. And that in the resurrection, Jesus purchased for us eternal life so that our hope is not in this world alone. Because if our only hope was that God was present in the circumstances of life, the Apostle Paul says, what hope do we have? This is what we're going to celebrate at Easter. The reality is the hope we have is that God will be present today in the midst of whatever circumstances you're facing, and you will be in his presence forever and ever, and death will be no more. Evil will be thrown into the bottomless pit. This is what Christ purchased through his death and resurrection. And his return is a secure promise. The promise that not only is he present today, but he is returning. In freedom, let us walk by faith and obedience. I love this picture that God cannot be controlled. He cannot be contained. He cannot be tamed. You cannot cage him. You can't control him. He roams like a lion outside his cage. There is a wonder and a fear that such a powerful God cannot be bound by our minds or our intentions or behaviors. He is free. And in his power, he moves toward us in love, promising to be present with us that we are restored, we're released from the chains and shackles of sin. 
and freedom. We're made into a new creation. Dignity restored. Shame covered. The power of God then proclaimed through our lives. And we have the same call that this man had. Go and tell the world. Tell them of the mercy that you've received. How God's steadfast love has been extended to you. Nobody else can tell your story. In the same way that the townspeople begged Jesus to leave. But then Jesus sent him into those same people to proclaim the mercy he received. There's some people who won't talk to me. It's like, oh, you're a pastor. The conversation changes when they hear that. Right? Like, oh, I went to church once. Like, oh, sorry I said that word, you're, you're a pastor. Like, it starts to be this performance. You have the ability to talk to people that I couldn't. You have a story that I can't share. It's not just that we are called to bring people to church. There's a sense where it's like you have received mercy from God. You have experienced His steadfast love in a unique way. Now go and tell your friends of the mercy of our Savior. This is what we are invited into. This is what we are called to. Because how we live and walk in faith, in the knowledge that God is present, it matters. I think about Peter, who, if you remember in the beginning of this study through the Gospel of Mark, Mark is written most likely as an eyewitness account of Peter. So this is why we get details like Jesus slept on a cushion, when it doesn't actually help the story, but it's because this Peter's remembering all these details, and Mark is writing all of this down. But Peter, later on, is going to write these words, as one who stood in that boat, as one who feared that God did not care. In the midst of storms, he said, Beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, rejoice. Rejoice that you get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Rejoice and be glad that His glory is going to be revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I pray that in the midst of whatever challenges you're facing, you can with great confidence commit your soul to our faithful Creator in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You. I thank You for Your faithfulness, for Your care, for Your love, even in the midst of our doubts. Lord, you, you draw near. You convict and you comfort. Lord, I pray for those here this morning who are going through things known and unknown to others. That you would fill their hearts with faith and knowledge that you are present and that you would help their hearts 
in emotions and will to rest on you as their ever-present help in time of need. Lord, would you strengthen, would you restore, would you lead and guide that your glory may be revealed in our own lives and through our lives. Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.